There we go. There we go. More good mornings than I thought. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So hope everyone had a good weekend. Um, yeah. So we have been in a series called Eight Days, which looks at um, the eight different days that are a part of Holy Week, which is the week that changed everything with Jesus going to the cross. And so we're taking, um, yeah, the first eight weeks of this semester on Sundays to, to take a look at that and look at how each day is like pretty significant and and obviously we're going to end with the resurrection sunday um, but i wanted to start out because today we're talking a lot about like different challenges that jesus uh talks about with with specifically the religious leaders and um, i wanted to tell a story um, some of you probably have have heard this a little bit um, about like a time that was was challenging for for me and made me like repent of what I thought before. Um, and so it's not like a big deal at all, but I thought that it related really well with, with, with this. Um, in high school, I tried my best to mainly pick classes that made the high school experience very easy and not challenging at all. And Brett, Brett <laughs> he's like, I, yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, my senior year um, was was looking like it was going to be really nice for a senior year. Just a lot of like elective classes, getting done what needed to get done early in the high school career, so the last year could just be a breeze and and chilling. And my pre-calculus teacher in the second semester uh, kept telling me like, "You really should take calculus. Like, I see a lot of potential in that in you, and so you should you should take it." And I was like. Absolutely not. That uh, that does not sound like fun, and um, would would disrupt what I was planning to have for for a breeze of my last school year in high school. But she kept, um, you know, putting that on to me. Like, basically, don't just you know breeze your way through your final year. I think you should do this. And she kept saying that, and kept saying that, kept saying that. And it, it just so happened that I decided, you know what, I think you're right. <laughs> I think I'm going to take calculus my, my, uh, my second, or not second, but by my senior year. And so um, her continuing to challenge and continuing to, to show like the potential that could be uh, helped me to eventually see that. And, and I, I call it repent, but change of mind that helped me see why it would be good for me me to do that. And so um, today we're going to be looking at specifically these these seven woes that Jesus talks about to these religious leaders. And, and like the whole point in that was to help them see like there is something there that needs to change. And, and for you today, I hope that like when we get to that place, when we look at these different woes, that maybe there's something there that Jesus says for, for you specifically in your life that, that needs to change. And so I've loved that Adam said this phrase because I think it explains like the entirety of what, what Jesus was doing in this, this uh, Holy Week, um, was, is that this phrase, the kingship, of Jesus subverts expectations. So it's not like the person who they thought it would end up being, like this crazy warrior dude who would come and, and you know, like, like just basically clean house. Um, he was very different from that. And 
he was looking at overturning Jerusalem with like repentance and not just completely wiping house. And so um, there's a lot here today, and so bear with me. Um, it's, it's a lot, but I think it's going to be really good for us. And so uh, specifically, if you want to turn to Matthew 21, we're going we're gonna to start in verse 23, and there's going to be a lot of explanation. Um, in, and then in the middle of 23, we'll look at specific scriptures. And then at the end, there will be some more explanations. But I wanted to hit like all a Tuesday to some degree, because I think it's really important to have, have that. And so just a little like build up, recap to getting to this point of, of Tuesday. On Sunday, the first Sunday of Holy Week, we looked at, it's called Palm Sunday, right? And here Jesus is having his, his famous like um, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and people were throwing down their, their coats and palm branches and yelling out, praise to Jesus and Hosanna, save us. And so Jesus wasn't like the, the crazy warrior dude that the people expected, but he was there to bring restoration. And so the next day, Monday, Jesus wasn't, or sorry, Jesus clears the temple of money changers, and he gives like these challenging, par- like a challenging parable about the fig tree withering to challenge them, and we can let it challenge us today to not just look on the outside, but produce fruit. And so what's happening on the inside as well? As we trust God, we will produce fruit. So today, um, like we're going to continue in this, this realm. If we believe in Jesus and what he can do, then we can see a rebellious nation overturned. And so Tuesday, um, just starting off, Jesus's authority is challenged a lot. Um, Pharisees and other religious leaders undermine Jesus's authority and basically are like, you know, what, what authority do you do these things? And um, Jesus uses, like, John the Baptist, who announced the preparation, like, he prepared the way of the Messiah. Um, Jesus tells the men who are questioning his authority this, the baptism of John was from what source, from heaven or from men? And they began considering the implications among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? And so basically the leaders respond, I don't know, because they don't know what to answer, because if they say yes, they're admitting that Jesus is the Messiah, which they don't really want to do. (laughs) And if they say no, then like all these people that are, that are around them, that are hearing this as well, as well, that are like in with Jesus are going to start, start a rampage on them. Like, what are you doing? how could you not see this? And um, so they take the easy way out and say, I don't know. And so Jesus is like, now I'm not telling you what authority I do these things. <laughs> so he, he challenges them back. And so um, then Jesus responds to them with these different parables that portray these religious leaders with wickedness to help them see that they have a need for repentance. Um, the first is about a man who had two sons, and they want, like, that he wanted them to do a task. The first one is like, I don't really want to, but he ends up doing it. And the second one is like, okay, I'll go do it, but then he just lets it idly by and doesn't do anything about it. And so, so Jesus tells them that, um, that 
the Pharisees and religious leaders here that he's talking to are like the second son because they say that they believe, but they won't follow Jesus. They won't follow the, the kingdom that is coming. And while these notorious sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes were repenting at John's teaching, and now the Messiah's teaching, they were becoming true members of God's kingdom because they responded in repentance and did the work that was before them. The second parable we see that Jesus tells is a landowner who casts away dishonest and disobedient tenants, and God will cast off these religious leaders who refuse his kingdom and give to those who embrace his kingdom. When those invited to a wedding refuse to come, the king will send his servants to find anyone willing to come and be a part of it. And so a question, a few questions actually, that I have for us to think about is, are we willing to be a part of the Jesus kingdom, or are we struggling just like the religious leaders to accept Jesus? Are we exalting ourselves just like the religious leaders, or are we, becoming, are we coming from a humble place to follow Jesus by recognizing our true need for the Savior? Jesus grieves over Jerusalem. He so badly wants others to get it, so much so that he deals these seven specific woes in Matthew that I want us to take time to look at because I think there might be one or two that we can relate with. And maybe for you, that's a challenge if you see one, it's like, oh, that's me. And know that that's okay because this is why Jesus said these things, to get them to, to, to think about what's going on in their lives, to see the places that they need change. And maybe that's you today as well. I know, I know I read a couple of these, and I was like, oof, um, I, I need to work on that. <laughs> and so know that that's okay. That's why these things were dealt, so that people would think about what's going on and that they can, too, have that chance to change. And so Jesus gives these seven woes, and we're going to read a little bit of Scripture, and then basically there will be points that come after that talk about what we should do as a response to these things. So the first one starts in Matthew 23, 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut the kingdom of heaven in front of people, for you do not enter it yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So don't shut the kingdom of heaven. Being a religious leader in Jerusalem was much different than like, like a pastor today. And like that, saying that, like that's not saying like I'm off the hook or Adam and Hannah are off the hook or any of the leaders here or, or even you are off the hook um, today. But in Israel's history, culture, and daily life centered around their relationship with God. It was supposed to. And at some points, we can see and read in Scripture that that, that relationship was pretty poor. Um, but at other times, they, they, they did well. The Pharisees and religious leaders were the best known, most powerful, and well-respected. Jesus made these stinging accusations toward them because they had lost sight of God due to their hunger for power and status and desire for money. And their blindness was actually spreading into the people. So Jesus was calling them out because they were being hypocrites, which means like being an actor, and they weren't opening up the kingdom of heaven for others as they should have been doing. So they were closing and locking the doors. And I enjoy what David Guzik writes about this. 
If they had opened the kingdom of heaven to men, then they would have welcomed and received Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. And so it's, it's bad for us, obviously, when we miss out on this opportunity of following Jesus and miss out and living in his eternal kingdom, which is both here, but at the same time, not yet. Um, story for another day. Uh, you could talk about that for a while. So story for another day. But it's even worse when we prevent other people from entering the kingdom as well. And so it's rough to hear, but Jesus uses these really challenging words, and sometimes Jesus would use emphasis, and so he would go, go big or go home with, with uh, the words he would use, and I think that it's a good challenge for us just to think about. Um, he says in, in Matthew eighteen six, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin is better th- for him than a heavy millstone to be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depths of the sea. So that's pretty rough to hear. If you're like me, I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. And that's, that's the point is like, it should challenge you to be like, I don't want anything at all to do with that. And so I am going to follow the way that I should be going. And if you're following Jesus, this is, this is the thing here. If you're following Jesus and, and your life is centered around him, and this won't even be an option. You're going to be bringing the kingdom to people. Like, this isn't a thing, like, I hope I'm not doing this. Like, this is, if you follow Jesus and trust in him, this isn't even going to be an option. Jesus was talking to these people who were supposed to be his leaders and his followers, people bringing the kingdom specifically to people because they have that position to do so, and they weren't opening the kingdom to other people, the poor and the oppressed. Like, we have a great opportunity to do so. So following Jesus is meant to be challenging. Following his lead will never lead you to shut the kingdom's doors on someone else, but sometimes I think we need kicked in the shins with challenges to realize when we're wrong and need of repentance. And that's the beauty because we always get a chance to turn back because of what Jesus has done for us when he died and rose from the dead to live in, in the new. And so don't shut the kingdom of heaven's doors. Instead, sprint through the gates. If the religious leaders were truly for opening the kingdom of heaven, then they would have embraced Jesus as the Messiah. And so let's embrace Jesus. So a quick note. Some of your translations in Matthew may not include verse 14. And so this is like a bonus woe. Uh, the early manuscripts, uh, a little Bible history, didn't include this verse, but some later manuscripts um, did, and so there are some, some translations that include 14 and some that don't. Reason because someone who may have like copied down Matthew's original copy might have borrowed Mark's or Luke's version of this and added it in there, and so I wanted to acknowledge that because you might read verse 13, and then it's like, wait, where's, where's 14 at? And so that's not necessarily wrong. It's probably just some guy like, oh, Matthew just accidentally missed this. And so let's just add it in to, to fill it out. Um, so I wanted to, to say it, though, because I think as well it is a very good, good point. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you receive greater condemnation. So what does it show the world when we're willing to step on the toes of the oppressed as followers of Jesus. It shows we've turned a blind eye to his kingdom as followers of Jesus. 
We've stepped on the toes of what the kingdom is truly for, bringing the year of Jubilee to be forever from here on out. Jesus said what he was to do because of the spirit of the Lord was upon him in Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord anointed me to bring good news to the humble. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, which is the Jubilee, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the cloak of praise instead of a disheartened spirit, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So if you don't know what the year of Jubilee is, it's like the perfect Sabbath where there's been seven Sabbaths, which is like every seven years. So it's like seven times seven is 49. And so to celebrate that on the 50th year, they would have this year of Jubilee, which is all about proclaiming that like freedom and setting slaves free. And they would give like land back to people who originally owned it. Debts would be forgiven. So all of this like setting free was happening And Jesus is basically proclaiming, like, from here on out, year of Jubilee is happening. And so a question to think with this is, like, what if we brought that here in Terre Haute? What if we brought that here in Indiana State, where we forgave people who hurt us? Where we see someone who is in need, whether that's, like, food-related, or whether it's in need with, like, a skill, like, like, education skill, like, Maybe you're really good at at math and someone is really terrible with it and they need it to be able to pass their graduation core and so you you help them with it. Or maybe you're really good at at English. I I am not very good with like sentence structure and stuff like that and Caitlin can let you know like, yeah, that's very true and um, she helped me a lot. And so like, like being able to help each other with with our, our flaws and also help each other with things that we can offer to the table. What if we brought that here? So that's the bonus one. The next one is in Matthew twenty three fifteen. What do you scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, which means convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So second thing is don't travel to make one convert without giving them direction towards Jesus. The religious leaders sought converts, and obviously that's not bad to seek like people coming to know Jesus, right? Like we want that, but they would do it not correctly. They gave them direction, but not towards Jesus and not towards the kingdom of heaven. These converts were more attracted to religiosity and not towards relationship with God. By getting caught up in all these laws and regulations, they missed the point of why they were there in the first place, which is to guide them towards living a holy life towards God. It's good to bring people to Jesus and see others convert from their former ways of life, but what are we leading them towards? Striking a check mark in a box? recreating more people focused on religion, which often that's why people don't want to to be a part of church because of the religion aspect. 
or will we help them see that new life is available in Jesus? That what they've dealt with for so long can be released because of what Jesus has done for them. We need to give directions towards Jesus and not just a bunch of rules. Like some of those things, obviously, yeah, it's good to have these things that help us um, build rhythms in our life to, to be clean and pure and stuff like that. But are we more focused on that or are we focused on, on helping people experience the Savior who's come for them to bring new life for them? So this is number three. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And you say, whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering that, is on, that it's on is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, the one who swears by the altar swears both by the altar and everything on it. And the one who swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells in it. And the one who swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God, by him who sits upon it. So third, don't be blind guides who misalign the value and mission of the temple, which is Jesus. So swearing by the temple in these days is like when you would, would do like a, a promise, but, but like cross your fingers, you remember? Like, like, I promise I didn't do it, and you'd like show your friends, you know, be like, look that. You know you did it. Um, I did it. We can be honest. But these religious leaders would construct these like intricate systems that would basically be that kind of thing. Like, I'm not swearing on God. I'm just swearing on, like, this little little object or something. Um, and so they would, they would do this um, to, to basically have, like, a, a get-out-of-jail card um, with, with, with God. <laughs> and obviously, that's not good. Um, so there's this, this long, like, I really enjoy how he, he writes it. It's a longer quote, but I think it really explains, like, what this, this is. Um, by, by David Guzik in his Enduring Word study. Here Jesus emphasized that the altar itself is greater than the sacrifice made upon it. The altar is the established meeting place between God and man, and our altar is Jesus himself, his work on the cross. Having never been separated from God the Father by sin, Jesus himself needed no altar. He had a free and glorious relationship with his Father it was the freedom of Adam before the fall, or even more so because Jesus had a history of relationship with his father that Adam did not know. It is worthy to think of the greatness of the Old Testament altar. The purpose of the altar is significant. It sanctified what was put upon it, and it sustained and bore up the sacrifice until it was consumed. The location of the altar is also significant. It shows that we come to Jesus and his atoning work first. The shape of the altar is significant. It is square and perfectly proportioned, stable and unshakable. The horns of the altar are significant. They show the power of God inherent in Jesus. The position of the altar is also significant. It is not raised, but it is low enough for all to approach. It has no steps that would reveal human flesh. The appearance of the altar is significant. It is smeared with blood of sacrifice. 
The material of the altar is also significant. It is brass forged in the fire and able to endure the judgment of the flames. So I love how Jesus just straight up slams the Pharisees. And sometimes it's like, dang, Jesus really said that to them? Man. And uh, Jesus, that's kind of like a little bit what's happening here. Jesus tells the Pharisees not to make oaths because actually all oaths are binding to God. So enacting these laws, we're actually leading people to follow man-made traditions instead of God's word. So let's be careful with our promises and our oaths Make sure what we do isn't leading others to, towards man-made traditions. Instead, elevating Jesus and what he's done for us. Because Jesus is actually this altar that he's talking about. Which also means, like it says at the end there in his quote, forged in the file and fire and able to endure the judgment of the flames. Jesus is able to do that for us. Whatever we're bringing to the table, that's what Jesus died for. That's what Jesus died for. So here's the fourth one. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. So don't just tithe, but give to the point that it actually requires sacrifice and helps those in need. And so it's easy to give when we live in abundance. And this is also a challenge for, for me as well. What, what are we doing to help others? Whether it's financial or giving time or giving away resources that we have. Um, I didn't ask permission from Caitlin to, to talk about this, so, so I, I'm asking now. Um, <laughs> I promise it's not bad, I don't think. My wife and I, we recently had a day where um, we just grabbed a bunch of clothes from our closets that, that we had where we didn't even like, weren't even wearing anymore, some that didn't fit. And we were just, like, amazed at the end of it where we had, like, like five trash bags full of clothes. And, um, like, we ended up giving them away and stuff. But to me, it was just, like, dumbfounding at we had all these clothes that, like, it, you know, I wouldn't say, like, we were, we were overflowing. It didn't look like that. But when we really like gathered them, I was just amazed by that because at the end of the day too, is like we still have more probably than we need. And um, that was just kind of mind blowing to me to see that, to realize like we actually have more than we think we do. And that was like in my mind like, man, in all of these clothes, can go to people who can actually use them, that they'll actually get more use out of it because they're in somebody else's home who needs them. I think that's helped me with a mindset of giving this thing that I'm not really using anymore. If it could benefit someone else, why don't we just give it to them to help? I think that's like when you read the book of Acts where it talks about like nobody had any need. I 
think that's what they were doing, is they were giving away to people who had need, whether that was food-related or whether that was, like, labor-related, um, because maybe, maybe there were widows who didn't have help to, like, carry some of the, the big things that they needed for their homes, and so some of the men would go over to their houses and, and help with that. What is it that we can do to give away to help people who are in need? It doesn't just have to be finances. It can be, obviously. It doesn't just have to be time, but it could be. What's that for you? The next one. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup of the dish so that the outside would become clean as well. So, don't clean the outside of life to look good, but leave the inside full of robbery and self-indulgence. The inside needs to be clean as well. This one and the next woe are fairly similar. They deal when the outside of our lives look very different from the inside. The religious leaders were more worried about appearing righteous to those around them that they neglected the issues that were going on in their hearts. Dealing with corruption, pride, lust, other sins as well. So Jesus tells them to do and what I think we need to do um, because, like, if, if we're honest, this is something what, that we all deal with. It's the thing where people ask, how you doing? Good. <laughs> we all say that, right? <laughs> it's like automatic good. And maybe we lead others to think, like, everything is actually okay when we know deep inside that not everything is okay. He challenges to cleanse the dish and the inside so that the whole self may become clean, not just the outside. True outward righteousness starts on the inside. So Jesus then goes on to say, What do you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but on the inside are full of, of dead bones and all uncleanliness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to people, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So don't just be beautiful on the outside, but also on the inside. And that's not supposed to be a cliche. That's supposed to be real. Like be beautiful, not just on the outside, but also on the inside. Before Passover, which I think is genius of Jesus to use this as an illustration, um, they would like, wash the tombs of, of like, you know, the, the people who had been buried in, around in the area, because if you touch, like, anything dead, then, um, then you would be considered unclean and have to wait a week and wash in, in water to, like, become ceremonially clean again before you could enter into, like, back in the day of Exodus and Numbers and stuff like that in the camp, but then when it was the temple in Jerusalem before you could enter back into Jerusalem. And so they, like, would do this where they would whitewash these tombs so that people would avoid that. They would avoid, basically avoid death, like coming to, to touch it unintentionally. And so these graves would appear beautiful, but beautiful as they were on the inside, there is death. So men 
might have seen the, these leaders like as righteous, but God saw them as they actually were full of corruption and chaos and destruction. And Jesus emphasizes the severity to show them their need to turn and repent. Yet we, we know because of, of Good Friday, right, they, they refuse. And so that might not be all of them that, that refuse to turn, but at least some of them do, and it leads to that. So for us, like, what is that in us? Are there places that we need to clean up that maybe Jesus is calling to come alive again? What is that for you? And then comes the seventh and final woe. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, for you build the tombs for the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of guilt of your fathers, you snakes, you offspring of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Of hell? And so don't build tombs for the righteous, but tear down those teachers who are teaching God's truth. So these religious leaders would often like held, they held deep respect for like former prophets like Elijah and Elisha, and I mean, there are others that are listed in scripture, some, some that are just called the prophet of the town. Um, they would hold deep, deep respect for these people in their days um, that, that, you know, that other prophets, or not other prophets, other religious leaders would have destroyed. And just like their ancestors did to these prophets in their history, they were doing, and they would eventually do to, to Jesus. And so Jesus tells them, therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of them that you will kill and crucify, some of them that you will flog in your synagogues, persecute from city to city so that upon you will fall the guilt of the righteous bloodshed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the temple and the altar truly I say to you all these things will come upon this generation and if if you like look at like the book of Acts and stuff like that you see the these like people being sent not all of them died because of other religious leaders. Some were, were persecuted because of, like, you know, Nero and, and other people. But you, you see that, that this happened where Jesus sent these people, so, and some of them became martyrs in the early church. And we still obviously have martyrs to this day. So he was telling these religious leaders that he was sending these, these prophets to do all of that. And so after all of this, Jesus... Um, he goes on to proclaim um, that there would actually be a time in the future, though, when Jerusalem would once again proclaim this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is a beautiful glimmer of hope. That is the glimmer of hope. And it reminds me of when all the prophets came in the Old Testament, and they, they would like talk about, like, you know, all this, this stuff is going to happen because you refuse to turn but one day, Jerusalem is going to be made clean again. And so to finish out Tuesday, Jesus takes his disciples to the Mount of Olives, and he taught them about his future return. 
There would be wars and false messiahs and earthquakes and so much other chaos going around the world. But this would only be the birthing pains. So what are Jesus' followers supposed to do as we continue to wait for his coming? Stay alert and be ready. Wait patiently for the Son of Man is coming. The time of Christ's return is known to no one, which is why we need to continue to proclaim Jubilee here on earth as it is in heaven, to free the captives and the hurting, to bring freedom and justice to the oppressed, whether that's racially or people who are impoverished, people who are disabled, people who are just outcast because nobody likes them, like Zacchaeus. We are to be Jesus to the hurting world because the hurting world still needs Jesus. We still need Jesus. So let's pursue him and follow him and not miss out on his kingdom now or in the days to come. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for what you do. And thank you for um, the challenges that you give in Scripture that make us think, truly make us think. And so I pray, God, that we would see how and what you did um, for, for all people and how you came to earth and how you proclaimed freedom to all. And so, Jesus, I pray that we would hold on to that hope, that we would once again proclaim Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, Thank you, Jesus, for being that for us. Thank you for being hope for us. I pray, God, that, that all of us here, that we would give to you right now just our darknesses that we have, the shames that we, would ha- that we have, and that we would just leave them with you and let your hope and let your light speak into us because you want us to turn to you you want us to turn to you, and so I pray that we would be willing to do so. It's in your name we pray. Amen.